your mission, that we may be strengthened by your power, that we might be led forward into your joy. Amen. During Pentecost, we have been reading the scripture in two languages, and this is to um, commemorate how the Holy Spirit descended on peoples of different languages and ethnicities, and um, they were able to perceive the gospel in their language of their heart and their home. And so we're hoping to mirror that in our worship, and so this will be the last Sunday that we'll be doing that. This morning, Jung will be reading Korean, and I will be reading in English. Our scripture passage is taken from John chapter 14, verses 15 to 23. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Anyone who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Uh,
예수께서 대답하여 가라사대 사람이 나를 사랑하면 내 말을 지키리니 내 아버지께서 저를 사랑하실 것이요. This is the word of the Lord. I hope you can find a Bible in front of you so that you can look at some of the scriptures that we might refer to. Um, but starting with, with John 14, I'd like to just focus in on verses 16 and 17 for a minute uh, as we uh, get into this message. Today I'd like to talk about the Holy Spirit to finish our series together, but specifically talking about a word in the scripture that you might connect to Holy Spirit and you might not. Uh, the word is grace. I hear it used a lot in people. Um, we use it in all kinds of fun, fun ways. Um, you might say a prayer before you eat a meal, and you'll say, let's say grace. Uh, you might uh, have someone cut in line of you while you're driving on a freeway, and you might give them grace to get in there. Um, and uh, you might use that word when you're talking about someone who's being kind to someone or someone's getting mercy when they shouldn't be. And you might use that word. But have you ever thought that that word might have a whole lot more meaning than that? Well, let's pray, and then we're going to try to get into some scriptures here. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the way our service has led us already to the truth of what you have done for us. I, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled by the fact that you would come to earth and die on the cross for our sins, but thank you by the power of your Spirit being raised again to conquering sin and death and that you made this promise that you wouldn't leave us as orphans but that you would send your Holy Spirit. And though, Father, we don't fully have an understanding of all that that means, we thank you that you are not just with us but we have the opportunity to have you live in us. So I pray, Lord, that in what I prepared, that you could use it in our hearts and our minds and help us in this time of considering and thinking about Pentecost and what took place there and how that affects my life today. I pray, Father, for freedom. I pray for your anointing. I pray for anyone that might feel bound that they could be let, let free. I pray for those that are not able to have faith in you that maybe they would take another step in considering that their eyes and ears would be opened and that you would be honored and glorified by all we do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The two verses that I kind of wanted to jump out of in, in John chapter 14 were verse 16 and 17. And where Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate or comforter, or in, encourager, or counselor. The Greek word there is paraclete, which doesn't mean much to me. It sounds like something you do mountain climbing. Um, but uh, but that, 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 that concept there is someone exactly like me, who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him because, well, 
but you know him because he lives with you and now uh, with he lives with you now and later will be in you something interesting there when he when he hit the word world the world can't receive him um, i've been reading through john and it hit me the other day that when jesus was using the word world i'm sure he was meaning the whole world but in their mind the world that jesus was confronting wasn't even the world of the roman government so much as it was the world of the religiosity that they were in. And Jesus came specifically declaring that he was going to open eyes and open ears, that he was going to heal that way. We see the, 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 the different parables uh, or stories through, the, through this where Jesus opened people's eyes and they saw for the first time that Jesus was talking about something here that was, that was yes, big, but also local to the, the people that were listening and hearing at that moment. And so when they heard world, they were saying, Jesus is wrestling with our religious world, our religious reality, what we think is true. And true then becomes about Jesus being the truth, becomes for some about doctrine, about rules, about this. And Jesus did everything he could to say things like, well, Moses said, but I say. And when Jesus started to confront truth, he was starting to confront truth about what was really going on in people's hearts and about relationships one to another, and about different, different things. There's something there. So when he said, I'm going to send you another, another comforter, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, who's been with you, and then will be in you, what do you think was going on in their heads? This was something really strange and really weird. But they had already had experiences by this time, where they'd gone to places and they'd seen physical healings take place. I wonder if I put a hands up, how many of you have actually been part of praying for someone and actually see a physical healing take place almost right away? There'd be maybe a few of you. Maybe there'd be others who said, well, I'm not sure I believe it that way. Because skepticism can be pretty big. And these walls can be pretty big. And that's the world that I believe Jesus was actually referring to when he used the word world. And yes, of course, he's meaning the whole world because he's the savior of the world. But in their world, their world was this small. So we go on in the story to the book of Acts, um, in Acts chapter 1, leading up to Pentecost, Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, and Jesus is saying to his disciples, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. And Jesus promised, if you read further in 14, John 14, you see Jesus, there's a, there's a gift I'm going to leave you. It's a gift of peace, and we separate that from this whole teaching of the Holy Spirit, but you really can't because it's all woven together. This gift that he promised, as I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, then a few verses later in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. You will receive power. Now, when you think of power, what do you think? You know, Marvel Universe, right? And you think, you think power coming out of your fingers or your hands or, or somehow you've got some kind of a thing like that? And, and some go like, well, yeah, see, that's not real. That's all made up. And yet, what did we see a few, a few verses later in Acts chapter 2? We illustrated it today by having two different languages being read. Where something like flames came on people's heads and they spilled out onto the streets 
this, this uh, what was it, 120 in an upper room, spilled out in the streets, and they started speaking in something of languages and tongues, and, and everyone that was there basically heard the gospel message in their own language. It was weird. It was weird and strange. In fact, some mocked them and said they got to be drunk. And then Peter got up, and we said the words earlier. What do we need to do? They were cut to the quick. Repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we can go through the scriptures and we can see other places where the Holy Spirit showed up in the same way. A few chapters later, we see that the Holy Spirit shows up like that with Samaritans. And they all speak in tongues and prophesy and whatnot. And then a few chapters later, we see it, we see it with Gentiles. Where Peter is going into this Gentile home and wasn't even supposed to be there. He gets a sheet coming down in a vision that says, says um, don't call unclean what I call clean. So he's going into a Gentile home, which he wasn't supposed to, but, but he felt the Holy Spirit say, go this way. And without hardly getting a word out, he didn't explain to them the right order and the right things to do and do this and do that. And the Holy Spirit fell on them and they all spoke in tongues. And he's just sitting there shocked, going like, this is our thing, not your thing. How'd you get it? Because what Jesus was saying was something way bigger and way more. Way more. I love the next, the next one that it shows up is later in, in Ephesus where Paul is, is preaching to these people and they're all excited about hearing about the gospel and, and, and he says, well, have you received the Holy Spirit yet? Have you been prayed for that kind of peace? And they go like, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? And he says, well, what baptism did you receive? We received the baptism of John. He's like, well, do you know about Jesus? And they go like, oh, no. So he tells them about Jesus. And before he knows it, they get a dump of the Holy Spirit all over them. And it's really easy for some people to say, okay, now everyone, you've got to speak in tongues or you're not there. And maybe some of you have been in groups of, of, of believers that go that way. Um, you could go the other ones. No, no, no. This is just the beginning of the church. This is just when God did... You know, he started things. This was the starting of the church. And so he used a few extra things, and that's just all done with. It's all done with. When the last apostle died, it's all finished. And so I would say the majority of us are in the middle going like, is it that one or is it that one? And maybe you've had experiences here, like I've had some friends that have experiences over here that, that, that have been forced and pushed, and you're not in if you don't, and, and all this kind of stuff, the othering that takes place, and they just kind of like run from it. Or others experience things and say, this has got to be true, and it's got to be true for everybody. So now we become missionaries of that truth. Where on this side, it's like, no, 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 no. It's all about mysticism inside your heart. I'm going like, well, that's true too. And I'm trying to say that there's something here that God is saying, that this power isn't about power from me through me to control anybody. Jesus never used the power of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit he had in his physical baptism to control anyone but invited. And there's something about blinded eyes and, and, and stopped ears that he physically healed those people that had a bigger picture than just that. Well, sorry, I'm getting off into where I didn't really fully want to go, but I wanted to help you understand maybe where I'm trying to go today. I want to present something to you, a way to use the word grace that maybe you've never thought of before. See, I believe that all the way through Paul's writings, uh, the, that, that power is strongly understood, or at least implied, when he uses the word grace. And we've maybe never connected the two. You see, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not by works. It's by grace you've been saved in the physicality of that grace that you've been saved, Jesus came as a human. He died, 
was buried and was resurrected. There was a physicality of reality to this. But there was a spiritual reality that was even deeper. It is by grace you've been saved. That, that spiritual reality was where Jesus defeated, defeating the power of sin and death. And we often talk about sin, but we often forget that death is connected to that word through the New Testament almost all the time. Because their understanding of sin, I believe, is maybe a little different than what our understanding might be. I think because of translations, and I heard this in a podcast from a a, a woman theologian who's black, who said, you white people don't get get us. I'm going like, you're right, I'll be the first one to admit that I'm male, white, privileged, all that kind of stuff. And she said, because you haven't been an enslaved people, you don't get how that translation maybe has, has, has twisted us a bit. I'm going like, what do you mean? She says, well, generally from your Greek, Greek Bibles, you see the word sin and hear the term sin equaling missing the mark, which I'm told is the right Greek translation for that. She said, no, that's not how the Jews understood it. The enslaved people, they came from a different place. I'm going like, okay, I don't know this to be true, and I'm a little nervous even saying this because I've got some Hebrew scholars here in this room that are going to maybe shoot me to holes, but this, this made sense in my heart. That what she said was, what you're not understanding is the definition of the Hebrews understood that was basically anything that breaks a right relationship. That that's the definition of sin. I'm going like, huh. I was mentored by a mentor years ago, and that's what he kept on sharing with me. And I've been working with that definition for a while with this other definition over my head all the time. And she said, that other definition basically makes it an inner out, left or right, black or white, you know, this kind of a thought. Where breaking relationship puts a nuance on these scriptures that actually is way more helpful in understanding the ministry of grace and the Holy Spirit connection here. And what God's trying to say, well, at least what I'm trying to present to you. You can shoot me down and say I'm wrong, but this is but the conviction that I'm bringing as I'm growing. So the subject of grace has fallen prey to this, to, to this kind of practice. We say the word grace, biblically, and we understand the word unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Which itself has to be explained as meaning God is good to us, though we don't deserve it. Ever felt that? Ever heard that? Unmerited favor. You'll see it in most textbooks. I did some, just some, some, some searching through some, some, uh, some commentary notes, and, and, and it's pretty consistent, and yet those commentaries just can't leave it just there because they know that word's richer than that. There's something way richer than that, than just that. See, well, that definition, that just, just unmerited favor, this is uniformly declared across a large spectrum, which makes it seem true, and therefore is accepted as truth. Well... Here's where the problem is, I believe. Because I don't think it's what the scriptures are really saying. Based on what I've, I've researched, and I'm getting this from others too, um, this is simply cannot really mean, be the meaning of grace. So here to help, help us, I'm going to have three questions. and I, They're not perfect questions, and you can pick holes in them all you want, but, but maybe they can get us thinking down this line. The first question is, if grace is unmerited favor, if that's what grace is, then why does God only give it to the humble? Did you connect that? If grace is unmerited favor, then why does he only give it to the humble? That's a scripture verse from, from Proverbs 3, but also James requotes it, and so does Peter. If it's unmerited, then why is it only merited by being humble? Second question. If grace is unmerited favor, then why can you fall from it? 
That's what Galatians 5.4 kind of indicates. Why can you fall from it? How can you fall from something that's unmerited? Unless it's merited. If grace is unmerited favor, then why was Jesus filled with it? In John, in John, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, 17, and I think, I think 16 as well, actually uses the word grace, charis, charis, I can't say it right, sorry, uses that word three times in describing Jesus. Some translations actually take the word grace out and put something else there instead. But most translations have the word grace there. Grace and truth, which is something we hold together. Now, I don't know about your experience, but I've had preachers and people in my life use grace and truth as a hammer over my head many times. Jesus was full of grace, being kind and nice and merciful to you, but there's the other side. It's that but word that gets in there. I've got a friend who's a theologian. He says, you've got to remove that word but. The minute someone says but, they're not saying what that scripture's saying. Going like, hmm, that's interesting. That kind of fits with what I'm thinking and feeling about my relationship with God. But it's still there, that but. You know, I'm going to get you. If you don't toe the line, I'm going to get you. And then it all becomes about us, who's in and who's out. And who's right and who's wrong. And we're missing the whole point of the point of Jesus saying, I'm going to come and live with you and be in you. But all of a sudden, oh no, if it's just this, well then I can jump out. And Jesus can go to this, and Jesus can go to this, and Jesus can go to this. And then so, can you trust anything he says? Because one minute he's saying this, and the next minute he's saying that. And yeah, if grace is unmerited favor, then why was Jesus filled with it? Why did Jesus do no miraculous work until the baptism of water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Why do we say we believe in the full humanity of Jesus and the full deity of Jesus? Why do, we, why do we hold those pieces? Why do we believe in a verse that says, and he's tempted in all parts like we are, and yet without sin, and say, yeah, right, it was Jesus. It was easy for him. He could, he could, he could pull out from the God card anytime he wanted to. He could pull out his cross. See, I really am God. There you go. Take that, Satan. Take that, anyone else. I argued this in my thesis, and I think I won. That Jesus did nothing on this earth except by the same power that's available to you and me. He even said, in a kind of a context of miraculous things, that you will do greater things than what you've seen from me. And I'm going, like, I would just be happy to do half of what I saw Jesus do in the scriptures, let alone greater? Well, I know there's a whole message in that too. But my point is, when we use this word grace in a weird way, we're missing something of important that God wants to give us. See, mercy is unmerited favor. Mercy is unmerited favor. And as such, God gives it to the humble and to the proud. His mercy is over all his works. He makes the rain fall and the sunshine on the just and the unjust alike. We have blended grace and mercy into one idea, and it goes like this. Mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve, and grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Well, that's clever, but I don't believe that's quite right about that word. Mercy is all of that, and grace is something, well, I think even better. So what do I believe grace is? Well, what does the scripture tell us? Well, here's a few facts. I'll try to move quickly through these. Um, the word grace occurs, depending on which translation, but it's saying the King James Version because I had my, my strong concordance. I'm going through that. Um, about 170 times in, in, in that translation. 39 times in the Old Testament. 131 times in the New Testament. The general meaning in the Old Testament usage is to stoop in kindness to an inferior. Kind of sounds like mercy, but that's the Old Testament. But I think in the New Testament, God has something even greater for us. 
Of the New Testament occurrences, the Gospels use it only four times. Once in Luke, three times in John. All four references are about Jesus being truth and grace. The book of Acts does, does, uh, uses the word ten times. And the writings that we could argue about whether Paul wrote like Hebrews or not, but the writings that we kind of often sometimes consider Paul's, uses the word 99 times. And the remaining 17 times are found in other epistles uh, throughout the scripture. I remember one textbook I had in, in Bible college was Paul the Apostle of Grace. There's something about his word that's really important there. Clearly, the Apostle Paul dominates the text um, and talks about grace more than anybody else. And he kind of, if you follow his scriptures, if you follow his life through the scriptures a little bit, you see in the book of Romans, he's saying, oh, wretched man that I am. And in Philippians, where he's just about to finish his life, that we believe, he says, I can do all things through Christ. There's something of change of his perspective, something changing that took place that really started when he was on the road to throw all those Christians in prison and to kill them because he was going to stand for the truth. And where he met on the Damascus Road, he met his Lord. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it says, But he said to me, but God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient to you. My mercy is sufficient for you? Well, it's nice to have someone's mercy, but how is that sufficient? That's like saying, like, well, I let you off, so that should be good enough for you. I mean, you could go that way if you want, but that's not relationship. That's not what Paul was crying out for. There's got to be something more than just, like, tough. Just tough. Life is tough, Paul. Just handle it. Just handle it. My grace is sufficient. But he goes on and says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. There's something about the power that Jesus promised that we saw explode over them at Pentecost that is for us today in the same way it didn't end with the last apostle. It's made perfect in our weakness. Which means it really comes into relationship with God. Why did we take a moment to breathe this morning? Well, it's a nice physical thing to just quiet our hearts and take a breath. But there's something there about connecting to God in that process. My weakness means a deeper experience of the power of Christ, says J.B. Phillips in his translation of the Testament. Uh, the NLT says that the power of Christ may rest upon me and work through me. A.W. Tozer is quoted to say, God is looking for those through whom he can do the impossible. There's something about the presence of the Holy Spirit when we use the word grace. And there's times when I hear people use the word grace in just the sense of being nice to someone. And, and I'm going like, that's great. That's a good English translation. But if you're referring to the Bible, and we often do, I'm going like, everything inside me wants, I just want to jump on you and say, try this instead. And I just got to shut up and, you know, this is God's revelation, not mine. But I would like to offer a redefinition or a rediscover of definition of grace. Here's, my, here's, my, here's my, my play. It's not perfect, but here's my play. I stole it from someone. Grace is the empowering presence of God enabling you to be who he created you to be and to do what he has called you to do. Let me say it again. Grace is the empowering presence of God enabling you to be who he created you to be and to do what he's called you to do. In, in 2 Peter 4.10, where Peter uses the word, he says, 
Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Grace isn't just unmerited favor. Unmerited favor is actually distance. I let you go. Okay. Grace is what Jesus said. He's been with you. You guys have seen this. You've been around. And now he's going to move inside. I and you, you and me, that mystical. I don't understand it. I once read a book by A.W. Tozer. It was four evening sermons that he did on Sundays. And he spent four weeks convincing people they didn't want to have the Holy Spirit. Convincing them. Like he was just using reverse psychology the whole way. And he's saying, well, you don't want to be filled with another, another being. You don't want to submit your life to another being. You don't want to follow the Holy Spirit. You want to stay in control. And he just goes on and on and on for four Sundays. And I'm going, by the end of that book, he's like, you can't tell me I can't have the Holy Spirit. There's no way. I want the Holy Spirit. But I think sometimes we've, because of extremities, we've preached ourselves away from the Holy Spirit, and he becomes a concept in liturgy that's way up here rather than something we're hungering for to be filled with the Spirit, where when you do take time to be quiet before the Lord and listen and pray and be filled with it, you start to sense the difference. And you know that you shouldn't live off the feelings but there's something about the spirit that moves in your heart and changes things inside for you. Not so you can control someone else, but so that you can actually be a conduit of love even in hard, impossible, terrible situations. Grace is the empowering presence of God enabling you to be who he created you to be and to do what he's called you to do. Well, does this definition solve the intriguing questions? Grace for the humble? Well, yeah, because his power comes through when we humble ourselves before the Lord. The few examples in the Old Testament where the Spirit came on people when they were so disobedient are kind of scary examples. King Saul had that happen to him when he was about to kill a bunch of people. And it stopped him dead in his tracks. Does it talk about falling from grace? Yeah, because it's not like, I've given you grace, you disappoint, I'm going to take it away. It's about relationship. It's about his presence. Falling from that presence. Think about any relationship you have. When you start to walk away from that relationship, when forgiveness doesn't become a part of it, when you aren't walking in humility one to another, when those kind of pieces aren't there, what happens to that relationship? You fall from that relationship over time. You've heard the little statements, when, when you've got dis distance between you and God, who moved? And there's something here that, that starts to identify those questions and going like, oh, there's something relational here. It's not just black and white. And Jesus being full of grace? Well, of course. The humanity that Jesus was needed to be filled with that grace to do the ministry he did of truth, exposing what was really going on in people's hearts and lives and whatnot, and, and the religious elite of the day especially, and loving them and healing and doing all these kind of things. We can talk about power, but when we don't have power, there's one place where Paul says, I'm coming to visit you to see what kind of power you have. And what are we meaning? Was he meaning were you charismatic and were you jumping pews and were you speaking in tongues? Was he meaning that? Maybe. I don't think so. I think he was seeing what kind of power do you have to be living in the grace of God to overcome the struggles and the wrestles and the things that are horrible that want to break it apart because most of his letters are all about what's breaking churches apart. And I'm going like, whoa. 
that's me, Lord. It's really easy for me to point fingers. <laughs> that's me too. I'm going like, Lord, I want to live in that kind of grace. And he's saying, that's there for all of you. Come on in, guys. I'm trying to bring this into a, into a finish. <laughs> Paul's perspective on grace. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labor more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which works in me. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. There's something about the grace of God in order to minister. In order to walk out our Christian walk in our neighborhoods, in our families. I need to be filled with the grace of God. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day. This one preacher heard one time that was talking about this one person said, Lord, fill me, Lord, fill me. And another person said, don't do it, Lord, they leak. Going like, yeah, that's me, I leak. I leak. The scriptures I understand it when Paul says to be filled with the Spirit, the actual scripture I'm understanding is not be filled with the Spirit, but be being filled. It's about an ongoing relationship. It's about an ongoing thing. In Acts chapter 20, Paul, Paul says one more thing in Acts 23. He says, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. I'm, I'm sorry. Favor doesn't build me up. But the presence of his power, the presence of his relationship with me, that starts to build me up and give you an inheritance. So grace, by my definition, is the empowering presence of God enabling you to be who he created you to be and to do what he's called you to do. So what? Well, why, why, why is this important? Well, I think you kind of get it, but if it's just seen as mercy, then the song Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me leaves you in the sense of being the wretch. Now, it's a beautiful song, and I love it. I'm not commenting the psalm. It's what we might take from it. Now, now, how I feel about my sin and choices that I make from that, uh, sorry, it's not how I feel about my sin and my choice from that, but how I feel or see myself at my core, ready to be rejected, one mistake out and I'm gone, that that's can really make us unworthy, feel bad, we just kind of walk away, we don't deserve it, and it can really destroy us. That's so what? If it's seen as understood as a law or a decree or power, then we measure everything and every person around to it. They're under condemnation, who's in, who's out. It becomes a pecking order, performance, becomes a hard and brittle faith. When pushed, it all breaks and, and we walk away. The grace isn't about person. It isn't about relationship. If it's seen as other than from a relationship with God, we tend to excuse sin Breaking a right relationship as okay because I'm under grace. It can excuse bad behavior because I'm doing it for the Lord. And the wake of your ministry, the wake of who you are, becomes suspect and not good. And you start wondering deep inside, where is God? Where is God? And I watch people walk away, which has been really easy for any of us to do, walk away from the Lord because their only definition of God's presence is this other definition that's brittle and isn't based on relationship. 
Jesus said, I'm giving you a gift. It's a beautiful gift. When we believe that the Christian life is by our own strength, after we receive the grace, it's up to us. It's a one-time shot, or only when we screw up, it becomes cold. It breaks and stops relationship, and then it's just religion. Just religion. But it is for you to be filled in the kingdom, to walk in authority humbly as a child of the king, where, in other words, he uses his friend and sibling, and bring the kingdom wherever we are, a conduit, the gifts producing fruit. In faith, we can see healings, mountains moved, blindness is healed, the lost saved. And not by our strength, but by the strength and the power of God through us. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. Here's my end. Here's my end. While you're in your last week of Pentecost, think about your relationship to Holy Spirit being in you. Think about how maybe you have moved towards a definition on the word grace to just meaning favor. And I'm saying it's way more. The grace is the empowering presence of God, enabling you to be who he created you to be and to do what he's called you to do. I realize I'm way over time and the children want to go. <laughs> and it's beautiful out. But I felt like we needed to talk about the Holy Spirit today and take a few moments to consider. Now again, you can poke lots of holes in me. I'm, I'm, I'm up for it. I don't know that I could stand you in a fight, an open fight theologically. But I can tell you what I've been walking in my own life. This isn't about controlling someone. This is about receiving the gift of peace that Jesus said the world can't give you. And in his context, he was including religion. Can't give you. I'm going to give you that gift. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, what did Peter say? Repent. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. Believe in him. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So take a moment while we're preparing for communion to say, Holy Spirit, I want to walk in your grace. Let's prepare for communion.